Frankie, come. Come on. Frankie, come. Good boy. Good boy. Sit. Good boy. Down. Down. Good boy. And stay. Stay. Good boy. How about you? Can you sit down and stay for the next half hour? This is Spotlight on Assistance Dogs. Hello there, and welcome to the February 2022 edition of Spotlight on Assistance Dogs. I'm Devon from Canada. Well, February is Pet Dental Health Awareness Month. And I thought we'd mark the occasion by listening to excerpts of a webinar sponsored by the Animal Medical Center of New York. The presenter is Dr. Jordan Ford. He began by outlining the symptoms of periodontal disease. I've warned you about various types of dental disease that are very prevalent in dog and cat mouths. How do you, as the pet owner, detect it? There are some signs that are attributable to dental disease, no matter how we're defining it. Halitosis, not normal. Not normal for dogs to have rank foul breath. That is, uh, remember, those volatile sulfur compounds from those darn gram-negative aerobic bacteria. It's not normal. It's a sign of periodontal disease. Reduced appetite, reluctance to chew, favoring chewing on one side, scratching of the face. Certainly if you see things like mobile teeth, bleeding or receding gums, calculus deposition, those are all signs of periodontal disease generally. If you see a swelling with a disgusting draining tract out of the tooth or the cheek, that can be referable to dental disease. Um, hypersalivation, hiding, sneezing, nasal discharge, nose bleeding, if we have those oronasal fistulas. Unfortunately, the most common clinical sign is nothing at all. So not having any signs of, identifiable signs of dental disease 100% does not preclude the presence of even potentially quite severe disease. So just because you don't notice it doesn't mean it's not there. We should definitely still have our annual exam with our veterinarian and have them take a look in the mouth. Next, he described how periodontal disease progresses. And when we talk about periodontal disease, we're talking about progressive attachment loss between the tooth and its support structures. So when we have active destruction of those tissues, when this sulcus becomes unnaturally deep, so we get a progressive periodontal pocket moving slowly, sometimes not so slowly, but toward the uh, extent of the root of the tooth, we call that periodontitis. We do have periods of quiescence, so it's kind of a waxing and waning process, but it is kind of a, a constant march. It, we don't intervene regularly. It is a progressive disease. I'm talking a bit more about the nitty gritty of the pathogenesis of periodontal disease. It's frustrating to think about because it is immediate. It is constant. It's almost um, insurmountable. That's why we brush our teeth twice a day every day and we should still go to the dentist regularly because it is an ever-present threat to the health of our teeth. Initially, even after immediately after brushing your teeth, immediately after an ultrasonic scaling with your dentist, within seconds the process starts over again. So within saliva normally there are these uh, molecules of glycoproteins and they immediately start to settle onto the tooth surface 
in what we call as a dental pellicle. Within hours, that pellicle begins to become colonized with bacteria that normally reside within the oral cavity. And then we start to develop plaque, so plaque biofilm, which we're probably all familiar with, at least to some degree. This image on the right is actually kind of a um, electron photomicrograph of a tooth surface. So this white is the tooth itself. This tan color is that unpleasant plaque biofilm. And then these are bacteria that are starting to take root there. So if we don't kind of continually remove that biofilm, even as soon as 24 hours after that initial colonization, we start to see a change in the bacterial population there. That's because if we think about, if we consider again that sulcus, deeper within the sulcus, if we start to have it become kind of filled with plaque biofilm, that depth within the sulcus allows an oxygen-deprived environment, which allows gram-negative anaerobic bacteria to begin to colonize there. These bacteria are more concerning from a disease perspective. They produce compounds that are more destructive to the periodontium. They're much less friendly than the gram-positive aerobic bacteria. They also produce or tend to produce volatile compounds as waste products that have a lot of sulfur in them. So when we start to notice halitosis, that's kind of a, a clue as to what's going on. If we still don't intervene, we start to get gingivitis within 24 to 48 hours. Fortunately, that inflammation of the gingival tissue or the gums, that is reversible if we start to intervene. If we continue to not act, then 48 to 72 hours later, we start to have mineralization of that plaque biofilm. So even within the saliva normally, there's a fair amount of calcium and that calcium starts to precipitate out and get into that plaque biofilm and it starts to mineralize to form calculus or tartar. Once we get to that stage, then we are kind of further losing the battle because mineralized calculus is much more difficult to remove than plaque biofilm. It's more irritating to the soft tissues in the mouth, so it just makes disease a little bit more persistent. If we continue to let this disease process uh, progress, then we start to get pocketing and attachment loss. So again, that attachment loss in contrast to the gingivitis is not irreversible. So if we start to get deeper and deeper pockets between the tooth and its supporting structures, we cannot regain that tissue, unfortunately. So it behooves us to intervene. In terms of cofactors, so things that make periodontal disease worse in veterinary species, a lot of it is breed uh, dictated. So in general, small breed dogs are going to be more predisposed to periodontal disease than large breed dogs, than a dog that more closely resembles its wolf predecessor anatomically. And the reason for that is when we were breeding dogs to be smaller and cuter, unfortunately, we shrank their skulls a lot more rapidly than we shrank their teeth, if that makes sense. So a small breed dog is always going to have what we call kind of an unfavorable tooth to jaw ratio. Their teeth are going to be kind of disproportionately larger for their jaw anatomy relative to something like a Labrador or a German Shepherd. That disproportionate ratio, it makes the teeth more crowded in general and anything that causes crowding promotes plaque retention, which pr propagates periodontal disease. Similarly, certain breeds, so our brachycephalic breeds or our short muzzled breeds French Bulldogs, English Bulldogs, Cavaliers. Again, when we made these changes to their anatomy with selective breeding, we ignored the teeth to our own detriment and to theirs, unfortunately, because when we shorten the muzzle, then the teeth now start rotating and stacking on each other in 
ridiculous ways sometimes. And again, that's plaque retentive. It will perpetuate periodontal disease. Certain breeds, even if they don't have a um, conformation that is particularly uh, promoting a periodontal disease, seem to be just more affected. So Abyssinian cats, Somali cats, uh, some Maine Coons, they tend to have their own kind of anecdotally much more severe forms of periodontal disease for reasons not entirely understood. Even larger breed dogs like sight hounds, greyhounds, they are prone to periodontal disease, even though they're more of a larger conformation. So it's, it's something that uh, there is a breed association, even in the absence of a, a facial conformation that is um, not in their best interest. Another cofactor is persistent dentition. So when we have deciduous teeth, dogs and cats have deciduous teeth, as we do. And you can see in this image here on the right, this is actually a persistent deciduous left maxillary canine tooth. So that baby tooth has very much overstayed its welcome. It should not coexist with the emerging adult here. And you can see already that there's a little bit of debris accumulating between those teeth. Again, plaque retention, anything that is plaque retentive will set us up for failure for periodontal disease. So persistent deciduous teeth do need to be removed. Even um, on the individual basis, there is a kind of, even between, let's say we have two dogs of the same breed, two Labradors, one may be kind of resistant to periodontal disease and one may be very, very affected. There is an individual basis to um, the host immune response to periodontal disease that unfortunately contributes to the disease pathogenesis. So if an individual dog or human or cat is just very inflammatory in its reaction to that plaque biofilm, unfortunately that inflammatory reaction can also do some sort of uh, poorly directed nondescript um, or kind of collateral damage to the, the host's own tissues. So they don't do themselves any favors if they're very reactive to the plaque biofilm. Other things just like poor systemic health in general, advanced age, all of those things are going to be cofactors as well. Why do we care? We should care. <laughs> so from the human side of things, it's much better studied. That's kind of the, the trend in general. Human medicine, they always have much better research and data than we do on the veterinary side of things. So we kind of have to do some reverse extrapolation, but there have already been uh, convincing studies demonstrating a relationship between advanced periodontal disease in people and things like preterm birth, low birth weight, uh, cardiovascular disease. They found periodontal pathogens in atherosclerotic plaques in people, which is vile to consider, uh, neurovascular disease, pulmonary disease, and advanced periodontal disease also antagonizes our ability to control diabetes in people. So there are a number of very unpleasant consequences, and it makes sense if you consider your local anatomy. The mouth is a very well vascularized place. There's a lot of blood flow to the mouth, which is great from an oral surgical perspective because it means we heal a little bit more rapidly. When we talk about periodontal disease, though, when we have significant damage to the periodontium, when it's no longer an effective barrier between the all of the bacteria within the mouth and systemic circulation, it becomes a nice gateway for all of those plaque bacteria, all of those inflammatory mediators, all of that disgusting mess can just go right into a neighboring blood vessel and then zoom off to wreak havoc elsewhere in the body. On the veterinary side of things, we don't have as much direct uh, experimental evidence or research data supporting similar relationships. That's not 
I don't think that's reason enough to pretend that those relationships don't also exist. At the end of the day, a mammal is a mammal is a mammal. So in a lot of ways from a comparativeness and perspective, I think it's much more appropriate to assume that we do have these systemic consequences in our dogs and cats and that it does uh, serve their systemic health to get rid of festering inflammation within the mouth. So in terms of consequences that are more local, so less systemic, um, of course, we have tooth loss. If we don't intervene in progressive attachment loss, then ultimately the teeth will fall out, which is disappointing. But there are more significant local concerns as well. We can get facial abscessation, so we can have kind of eruptions through the cheeks uh, with some unpleasant draining tracts. Those are more commonly associated with endodontic disease, which we will talk about, but we can get true periodontal abscessation as well. Oronasal fistulas. So in small breed dogs especially, dachshunds are actually the poster children for this. So their maxillary canine teeth, those large teeth on the front of their mouths, the shelf of bone between those teeth is very thin. And if we allow periodontal disease to run wild, then that bone can be eroded completely. And then we have a nice hole or a fistula between the oral cavity and the nasal cavity. So everything that was already disgusting about periodontal disease now has access into the nasal cavity where it does not belong. Additionally, things like food, hair, dirt, all sorts of filth <laughs> can uh, take months, years, sometimes to find these. And we just have all of that debris being shoveled into the nose for a significant amount of time sometimes. So when we start seeing disgusting nasal discharge, sometimes nose bleeds, then I would say check the teeth because sometimes it is related to periodontal disease. These dogs, they smell so terrible. This is preventable. We, we should intervene. We don't need to have this. Kind of the one of the worst case scenarios, um, and I have seen several cases like this in my residency so far, I'm only halfway through. Again, tends to be a small breed dog thing because their teeth compose such a large portion of the structure of their lower jaws if we allow periodontal disease to progress, we can actually get pathologic jaw fractures. So a force that might otherwise be pretty benign can strike a weakened jaw and cause fracture. So that's what we're seeing on uh, this image on the right. This is a 3D reconstruction of a CT. This is a little chihuahua, I believe. We can already see that most of the teeth are gone from the upper jaw. When we look at the lower jaws, I can already tell we've got some bone loss on these teeth, but as we look further forward, we have this huge step down because we have a complete fracture through this left mandible. And we also have a complete fracture on the other side as well. So this poor dog's jaw was probably just hanging slack because the periodontal disease has caused so much disease in the bone there that both of its mandibles have broken. Dr. Ford said that the best way to combat periodontal disease is through what he called home care if your animal will allow you to do it. So home care, let's talk about home care. I've alluded to it several times. It is a hard sell in veterinary medicine. It's not really on the public's mind yet. So I, I get it that I understand when you look at me like I'm crazy when I say, why don't you consider brushing your dog's teeth? Nevertheless, toothbrushing is always going to be the gold standard in preventing the progression of periodontal disease. That's why we brush our teeth twice a day, every day throughout our lifetimes, because it's effective. 
everything else that we have um, is somewhat in decreasing order of efficacy. So we have dental diets, we have dental treats, we have chews, water additives, supplements. So if either your animal will just not accept toothbrushing no matter what, or if you are brushing, great, and you just wanna do literally everything possible to prevent further progression of periodontal disease, we can throw the kitchen sink at them. Great, we have all of these tools in our sort of toolkit. All that being said, the veterinary market, the animal product market is unfortunately pretty unregulated. So to narrow down your choices as the consumer, I would recommend checking out the Veterinary Oral Health Council. So the BOHC is a group of veterinary dental specialists to whom manufacturers of products can voluntarily submit data and the council can then review that data and say, okay, yeah, there's convincing evidence that there's at least a modicum of benefit from this product. So if you're going to start exploring these types of products, I'd recommend visiting this website. They have lists of approved dog products, approved cat products. Great, use it as a shopping list if you're interested in incorporating these things. I think minimally dental chews are a great way to substitute something that you're probably already giving your dog. And just having a product that's a little bit more targeted toward preventing periodontal disease is an easy introduction. So toothbrushing, <laughs> it is the gold standard. And I think the problem is that some people, even if they do get curious and try it, their approach is to take a flying leap with a toothbrush at their dog's mouth who has never seen a toothbrush before and unsurprisingly, no one has fun. So we have to consider it as much a behavioral intervention as a dental one. So it's really just about getting everything you need and introducing things in a stepwise way and really just taking everything as painstakingly slowly as possible so that all these new novel things are innocuous. So getting ready for toothbrushing, sort of collecting what you need. There are veterinary toothbrushes available. Unfortunately, again, a lot of them tend to be a little bit more stiff bristled than is comfortable for a lot of patients. So we usually recommend just going to the drugstore and getting a pediatric human toothbrush. So the softest bristle you can find that has a cartoon character on it, great. And you don't really even need toothpaste for veterinary species. So toothpaste doesn't serve the same function. It's not fluoridated because we're not as concerned about cavities or dental caries in veterinary species. It's really about the mechanical action of removing that plaque regularly with a toothbrush. So you can just use a toothbrush in warm water if you don't want to bother with a toothpaste. Some of the veterinary toothpaste do have enzymes or sort of mineral chelating agents that maybe pre prevent uh, some progression from biofilm to calculus. Um, really, I would view them as a training aid. Most of them just taste delicious. They're poultry, seafood, malt, whatever works, whatever is really appealing to your dog or cat. And then just take a whole week, take two weeks, just to put a little bit of the toothpaste on your finger, let them lick it off, walk away. It's a delicious treat with no negative connotations. After you've gotten them to the point where they're enjoying the toothpaste, they're looking forward to it, maybe the next week you will lift up the cheek and swipe the toothpaste along the gum line. That's it, walk away. Just really make it a slow build up and kind of sneak up on them, not in the literal sense, but just kind of build up slowly to what you're actually working toward. When you finally get to the point of introducing the toothbrush, I don't think it's necessarily as demanding or onerous as people think. It's not necessarily the same motions that we, or the same complexity as in ourselves. So dogs and cats, their 
occlusions normally are what we call a scissor bite. So the way their teeth interact tends to be a little bit more self-cleaning than ours on the inside surfaces. So the lingual side or the palatal side, those tend to not accumulate calculus as much in veterinary species as in people. So if you can work toward just getting the outside surfaces, so the buccal or the cheek aspects of all of the teeth, 30 seconds per side, at least every other day, or remember, we have that window from plaque to calculus. If we miss that window, we can't brush away the calculus, we're wasting our time. But if we can accomplish that at least every other day, then it will do a lot of good, especially for patients that are predisposed to periodontal disease. So this video, it's a snippet of a video that's available, I think, through Ustan. And that's our, our Dr. Carmichael there with, a, I believe, a staff dog. And that's really just kind of the motion that ultimately you're going to want. And I think kind of what I recommend to clients just kind of setting yourself up is having your pet kind of in your lap, their back to your chest. You can use your non-dominant hand to cradle their muscle. And then once they're no longer afraid of the toothbrush, you can use your dominant hand just to get those cheek sides of the teeth. It doesn't have to be a battle. All of that being said, if you try it and it doesn't work out, I would rather you not persist than damage your relationship with your pet. It's, it's you know, we want to preserve your, your relationship with your companion animal above all things. So if it's a deal breaker, then don't push it, that's okay. Dr. Ford concluded his talk by listing some resources that you can turn to if you wish to. Prevention, as in periodontal disease, is easier for dental trauma, but sometimes more easily said than done. Uh, things like vehicular trauma, fall from height, animal-on-animal -animal violence, we can't always avert those things, unfortunately. But a lot of dental fractures are quite preventable. And that's because, again, the, the animal product market, unregulated, there are a lot of things that are easily available that are actually not good for your dog's teeth or your cat's teeth if they're a chewer, I guess. Things like bones, antlers, hooves, even hard plastic toys, all of those will break teeth. Tennis balls seem innocuous, but those things are like sandpaper. They will wear teeth down. So we shouldn't uh, encourage any of those things if we wanna preserve the integrity of the dog's or cat's teeth. So a bit of a, a rule of thumbnail, sorry, it's a very, punny presentation this evening, but if you cannot indent a potential chew toy with your thumbnail, it's probably too hard. If it looks like it would hurt if someone hit you in the knee with it, it's probably too hard. So err on the side of caution. 
So resources that I want you to be aware of and to go visit uh, the American Veterinary Dental College. So that is the governing body that admits veterinarians into the specialty of dentistry and oral surgery. They have a pretty excellent client education website, webpage, and um, anesthesia-free dentistry. I do want to take a moment to talk about it because it is offered even within New York City, which I think is incredibly unfortunate. The American Veterinary Dental College, the American Veterinary Medical Association, the American Animal Hospital Association, all these large bodies have come out with position statements against anesthesia-free dentistry. You cannot safely perform dentistry in a conscious veterinary patient. It's unkind to them, it's painful for them, it's unsafe for them. The eye, the brain, big vessels, they're all very close to the teeth. We don't wanna stick sharp objects in a conscious dog or cat's mouth. It's unsafe for the operator. No one likes being bitten. And we cannot adequately diagnose or treat disease in an awake patient. Say no to anesthesia-free dentistry, please. If you'd like to listen to the whole webinar, you can go to https colon slash slash amcny dot org. That's https colon slash slash amcny dot org. And that's just about going to do it for this edition of Spotlight on Assistance Dogs. And we'll see you again on March 18th. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good month. Bye for now.
Oh, <laughs> 